So this is week two of a series we've begun for the fall where we're considering the church. What is the church? Is it a building that provides programs for us and for our children? Is it something that gives us activity on our social calendars? Different circles and clubs and classes and outings that we can take? Well, certainly it is those things in our culture and in our world. But what we're concerned to do in the few weeks we have ahead of us is to look to Scripture and let Scripture answer the question, what is the church? Who is the church? And what in the world is God doing through the church? And so this morning, we're going to take a look at the origins of creation, what God has told us in Scripture He has done in the making of man and woman. And I call this sermon for this morning, The Big Picture. The Big Picture, our biblical story, our context. If you're a Christian, if your faith is in Christ, this is your big picture. This is your biblical story and context of who you are and where you have come from. Now, before we read the text, let me introduce it this way. Maybe you've been to Grandma's house at some point in your life, and maybe you visited that bookshelf that has all the old photo albums on it. Not the recent pictures. I'm talking about the old photo album, the one where the pictures are yellowed over. And they're a little bit crumbly on the sides. The old pictures, not of grandmother, but of great-grandmother and great-grandfather. Or great-great-grandmother and great-great-grandfather, whatever the case may be. When you look through those pictures, sometimes the response of a little one, a child looking at those old pictures and being told by a grandparent, now this was such and such, and they came from such and such a place, and they did such and such. And sometimes little children, and I was this way when I was that child, they'll roll their eyes and think, why do I have to listen to who these people were and where they came from? Can't I just go outside and play? Right? Some of you are that way. Now others of you you're made completely differently and you love those old stories and you want to know where you came from and who your people were and why they moved from one place to another we're all different we're all complex and confused unique individuals why do I tell you that story Well, because as we look to Genesis chapters 1 chapters 2 chapters 3 like looking in an old family photo album we're going back to find out who we are, where we've come from, what in the world God is doing. And some of you may roll your eyes and say, oh, I heard about this in Sunday school. I know this story already. But my real hope this morning is that you might, even though you're cold, you might hear this with new ears or maybe with a new heart to make sure your children hear this. And understand that God has given us, as a part of his revelation to us, 
an understanding of where we've come from and who our people were when they were first created. That's what we have in Genesis. I'll be reading from Genesis chapter 2. I've taken selections. There's no way to have read everything. And that was before I even knew it was going to be cold. So listen to these selections. I've limited it to what we call the apex of creation, the creating of the first man out of nothing, and then the woman out of his rib to be his complement, to be his helper in honoring the Lord. Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, verses 8 and 9, then verses 15 to 25. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man that he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees out of, grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. And in the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the Lord God took the man and he put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you're free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. The Lord God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky, and he brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. And so the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, the man, no suitable helper was found. And so the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. And then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. And the man said, This is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Let's pray that God would bless his word to our hearts. Lord, would you open our eyes that we might see the truth of your word? Lord, would you open our minds that we might believe the truth of your word. And Lord, would you open our hearts that we might serve the living God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
This morning I have three simple points for you, even as the sun comes out and we find that we're comfortable and warm together. The first point is this, in the beginning. In the beginning, this is the beginning of our big picture story, what God has told us to be true. He takes us to the beginning and he says, in the beginning. And what we find that in the beginning, everything was as it was supposed to be. Everything was orderly. Everything was decent and in good order. There was a beauty. There was a structure. There was a purpose. Everything was integrated. It was one as it should be. And so in Genesis we're told how God formed the heavens and the earth. And as a God of order, he then filled those things. He filled those structures with order. And it was all very good. It was all at peace with God. Cornelius Plantiga teaches us what this peace of creation was, as he calls it the shalom of God. Listen to this quote as it helps us understand what we had and what we've lost. Cornelius Plantinga says, In the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness and delight, a rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts are fruitfully employed, it is a state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder as its creator and savior opens doors and welcomes the creatures in whom he delights. Shalom, he says, in other words, is the way things ought to be. And so that simple definition is what we'll work with this morning. Shalom, the peace of God, is the way things ought to be to be. And so it was when God created the first man and the first woman prior to sin. Things were as they should be in the animal kingdom, in the human kingdom. And God shows us here in these early words of Genesis this structure, this formation that he gives creation. And there's supposed to be a decent order to the world, to the family, to worship and to work. Those are the components that make up this early revelation of, of God's world, of His creation. And these things were in decent and good order, we could say. Now, you know that this was a short-lived shalom. This was a short-lived shalom. Because when the fall would occur in Genesis chapter 3, everything is then ruined and comes into chaos. Now, how long was that short-lived shalom? Well, I don't know specifically how long that time of peace was. If, if we get into Genesis and you want to know the length of the creation days, go like this. Yes, we want to know how long those creation days were. How long did Adam and Eve have before they fell into sin and the world was in ruin? If you have those pressing questions and would like those specific answers, let me once again refer you to our assistant pastor, Archie Moore, Minister to 
families, our covenant families, our church family. He's happy to answer those very succinctly and shortly and accurately. Right, Archie? <laughs> in the beginning, God created everything in great order. But the fall of man in Genesis chapter 3, which we did not read, but which you have heard, when the man and the woman would disobey God's command and partake of the forbidden fruit, and then as God's created image, fall from their estate. The scriptures say they fell into a, an estate of misery and of ruin. And this is the world in which we live. A fallen world. Fallen creatures living in a fallen world. What God created with order because of sin is now in chaos. It is disintegrated. What God created that was integrated and whole and structured in order, now everything is in collapse, it's in ruin, it's in disintegration. We could say that now the world, the family, worship, and work are all disintegrated from their origins. They're all collapsed. They're all a ruined mess. And there is suffering and frustration that revolves around each one of those categories. Think about your own experience. The world is now suffering and experiencing frustration in every category because of sin, because of the condition of the earth and the condition of humanity. Now listen, it's not hard to prove this point if you think like I do. Turn on the news every night. And just in the past week, past weeks and past months, think about the world, the chaos, the ruin, the disintegration that we have seen and that we experience. In the past week, it's been hurricanes, wildfires, supposedly lit by people to create destruction, tornadoes spinning off of those hurricanes, racial rioting, tensions, looting, conflict, destruction. Everything about the world that we know is in chaos and it's in conflict. And as Christians, as Bible-believing Christians who are not embarrassed about the Bible, we're not embarrassed to look to Genesis, to Genesis and say, the Lord has told us about the context in which we live. We understand that things are in chaos in this life. We have categories for this. You have categories for this. If you're thinking biblically and as a Christian, all of the world is in chaos chaos, the world, even the family. The man and the woman were the apex of creation, created in the image of God, and then she from the rib of the man. The climax of creation. The family was at the center of God's gift to the earth. But what's come of the family in our culture? It's in chaos. It's disintegrated. It's in ruins. Divorce rates, infidelity in marriage, 
unmarried people. I listened to a statistic this week, listening to someone who was speaking on the subject, that in the 80s and 90s, 10% of the population chose to not marry. And now that statistic is 30% in the same age range are unmarried, but tend to cohabit, tend to live together. And that is the opposite of the kind of family that God's word has revealed to us. And so we find that the family, even, even genders, you know, it wasn't that long ago that if we spoke about gender in our culture, we would think of two. And then it became dozens. And now, supposedly, hundreds of genders. It's chaos, it's confusion, it's disintegration. It is what the fall has done to the earth. Worship itself, the worship of God. You take one small town like Greenwood, just the Christians in Greenwood, just the churches in Greenwood, and how much disagreement and disharmony can there be on the subject of worship? It's called the worship wars. How do you worship? When do you worship? Where do you worship? It's conflict, it's tension, it's chaos. And such is what the world is characterized by. And then our work in general, the things that we do with our week. Genesis said that thorns infest the ground. Work is complicated. Things break. People don't show up for work. You have a bad boss. You have a bad employee. The whole system of work and work ethic, all of this together, world family, worship, and work really can be categorized in the language of suffering and frustration. Those are the two words that characterize the fallen world of chaos that we live in. The New Testament says the same thing. Romans chapter 8, verses 18 to 23. Listen to what we're told there by the Apostle Paul. He says, I consider that our present sufferings, that is in this fallen and sinful world, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God, the church, to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration." not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. And so we're prepared for all of this with this image that this world is frustrating. It's filled with suffering because of the sin of our first parents. 
going back in the photo book to those early pages of our first parents, we see why the world is frustrated. We see why the world knows suffering. The question is, are you longing for God's redemption of it? Or are you just trying to pacify the pain in some worldly way as you live your life? And those are two very different things. You can try to pacify the pain of suffering and frustration in this life. People, places, and things can be misused to try to pacify the pain. But the church, according to Scripture, has been given words and promises that give us hope in the midst of the pain, the sufferings, and the frustration of this life. And that's the third point of our sermon this morning. That is until one day when all things will be made right. That is redemption. And what the Bible says about redemption Everything will be one day forever as it should be. One day, everything will be as it should be, or what we could call the hope for shalom again. That God promises there will be a day that all that is crooked will be made straight, all that is wrong will be made right, all that is perverted will be made pure. And that's the day where heaven and earth meet. When God's new creation, the new heavens, the new earth, His promise of redemption comes to completion, comes to fruition in the return of our Lord Jesus. These are the words and the promises that God's Word gives us. So as a church family, we have an understanding of where we've come from. And we look to Genesis without embarrassment to God's Word. We know where we've come from. And we know why in this present life things are so frustrating and there is so much suffering. God's given us categories for that. We understand the world in which we live. But unlike the world, we have a hope. A hope for how all this is going to be made right. Not by us, not by politicians, whatever their promises may be. It's all going to be made right in Jesus and by Jesus and for Jesus. And so as we have this series on the church according to Scripture, we're starting in Genesis with the big picture. Who are we and where did we come from? Why is the world as it is? And what hope do we have in the midst of this frustrating world filled with suffering? And that is the person of Jesus. And it will always be the person of Jesus. His perfect life, His death, His resurrection, and His coming again to make all things right. If those things sound familiar to you, if if those are, at the end of the day, the hope of your heart, then welcome to the biblical church. That's who we are. That's what we hold on to. That's what we preach. That's what we believe. And that's what we have to offer the world around us. 
Some will hear that and some will come in faith and respond to it. Others will put up a resistance, a disinterest, an arm's length. But whatever their response is not our responsibility. God is calling a people out of the frustration, out of the suffering to himself. Some will come to the Son and find him to be their great hope, their shalom that they've been seeking. Others will have no interest whatsoever. But regardless of their response, as a church, we have one hope to offer them. And it's always the person and the work of Jesus. Regardless of how messed up the world around us is, the solution is always the person and the perfect work of Jesus. As we close our sermon, let me turn our attention to the hymn that we're going to sing together in just a moment. It's the hymn, This Is My Father's World. And as we sing this, it's going to highlight some of the aspects of creation that we've, that we've heard about. The birds of the air that sing to us. The physical parts and aspects of creation that we know. But I like the hymn written by Mount B. Babcock in the 1800s. Because he has at the end of the hymn an honesty about the fallenness of the world. The suffering, the frustration of the world in which we live. And this to me is what makes the hymn especially worth singing. Listen to that last stanza before we sing it. He says, This is my Father's world. Oh, let me never forget that though the wrong seems oft so strong, God is the ruler yet. This is my Father's world. The battle is not done, but Jesus who died shall be satisfied when earth and heaven be one. Malt B is reminding us that there's a lot of suffering in this life. There's a lot of wrong happening in us, around us, and God forbid through us. But this is my father's world. And when we do click through the TV and see the horrors, the tragedies, the hardships, or when our phone rings and we get that bad news, what we did not want to hear, it's the Christian who has hope in the promises of God, who can sing in the midst of all the bad news and all the bad images. They can sing or they can at least whistle this is my Father's world. He is sovereign. He is good. He is not out of control. He is doing something. And our confidence and our hope is in Him. Even in the midst of the horror, the hardship, the suffering and the frustration. He prepared us for it. He now calls us to put our hope, not in our fixing this, but that one day He will. So Greenwood Presbyterian Church, where is your hope this morning? Is it just for a better economy? Is it just for a vaccine? Is it just for a political party? 
Or is your hope at the end of the day in the person and the work of Jesus alone? This is my Father's world, even when it doesn't feel like it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are the God of heaven and earth. You tell us to call you Father. You give us tender and intimate language to refer to you who created the first man and the first woman from the dust of the ground out of nothing and from the rib of the man. Lord, it's in you that we put our hope and our confidence. We do pray for this world in which we live. We plead for this world in which we live that heaven and earth would in fact be one. That peace might come where there is suffering. That shalom might come where there is frustration. But Lord, in the midst of our suffering and our frustration, help us by faith to not look for peace or healing or comfort in anyone or anything but the person and the promises of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in His name that we pray. Amen.